Take your Bible. Exodus 4, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a minute to get there. If you weren't here last week, it's still the uh, middle of the interchange between Moses and God at the burning bush. Remember the chapters and verses were added later. Uh, This one's maybe not the best place to stick it, but it's fine. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, "Lord, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. And it became a serpent. Moses ran from it. The Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. 
and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such fantastic and wonderfully true stories. Give us understanding, give us faith, but most of all, give us love for you, the triune God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to take you into a scene that has happened millions of times in millions of homes all across the globe. It goes something like this. Mother or father playing with the little children. The little children have been having a great time, having a blast. They've got their toys out. They've made a mess. Maybe it's right after Christmas and they've been playing with their Christmas toys. Maybe it's the middle of the summer and they've got their blocks out and their puzzles out and all the different animals are playing with each other and it's a great time. And dad says, all right, kiddo, it's time to clean up. And you hear the first response, oh, do we have to? Yes, it's time. All right, kiddo, pick up your toys. And you hear back the answer, but daddy, I can't. I love that answer. Because I know what the next sentence is going to be. An adorable lie. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know which form the lie will be. And it's been played out a thousand times in a thousand different places, in a thousand different homes with a thousand different children. It's going to be some creative falsehood. But daddy, I can't clean up. I have to go to the bathroom. You didn't have to go 90 seconds ago, but you do now. But daddy, I can't clean up. Pooh Bear is asleep. Of course he's asleep. He's a stuffed animal. He's always asleep. He's never not been asleep. That's how Pooh Bear operates. But daddy, I can't clean up. My hands don't work or whatever it is. You know, you know, you know the, it's great because it's always something new, but it's always something untrue. And it's hard being a parent, I guess, in those situations because you want to laugh. Or a grandparent, you want to laugh, but you shouldn't because it's a lie and lies are not funny. I would love to say that those moments stop with being a, ch- with a child. I'd love to say that when we turned three, we all left those lies behind. It is unfortunately not true. Even as we grow, we continue those lies. We just do them a bit more sophisticated. We make them sound a bit more sensical than my arms don't work or things like that. And we get to chapter 4 in Exodus and we get to see one of these interchanges with a man who is much like you or me giving a lie much like you or I might say. He has... Gone from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows in his life. You remember he was born and everywhere that it describes his birth, every place it mentions it in scripture, it mentions that he was an unusually beautiful and special child. He's a Gerber baby that is so good looking, everyone knows there's something special to the child. I mean, you want to talk about growing up in just a a, a weird life. 
so beautiful that everybody knows that, man, that's the handsome kid. I mean, normally it's the other way around. That's the ugly kid, but no, this is the good-looking one. He's raised in Pharaoh's house uh, for the first, uh, after the first three years, but for the first 40, and it, it would be the best of places to live in terms of affluence and education and opportunity. It would be like growing up in... Well, I mean, it is growing up in royalty. It'd be like growing up in the most sophisticated school with the greatest resources, uh, the, the greatest amount of money, the best food, the best health care, the best doctors, the best of everything. Until one inconvenient murder takes him from the best of the best to hiding in a pagan priest's house in the middle of the back country. Until chapter 3. And chapter 3 is where everything turns, everything alters, everything is different because God reveals himself to Moses in this mysterious burning bush. You remember uh, the way that it's phrased as Moses is saying it's two parts of this burning thing are spectacular. One, the nature of the fire itself is unique. It's the kind of fire that you see across the mountains and go, that's weird. I need to go check it out. And it continues to do so. It's unusual. It's unique. And as he comes into God's presence, the Lord enters into conversation. And the Lord here is magnificent in chapter 3 as he, in his power and in his glory and in his might and in his majesty, comes into conversation with Moses and says, Moses, I have raised you up to deliver my people. Verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3, I know their sufferings. He hasn't forgotten about them as they're miserable, as they're enslaved, as they're in bondage, as they're being murdered. God has not forgiven, or forgotten, I mean. And it ends in chapter 3 with the most unbelievable, this spectacular, wonderful description of what God is going to do. Verse 16, go when you get there and talk to the elders of Israel. Tell them that the Lord is the one who's going to do this. And tell them that the Lord is going to take you out of the land of Egypt. He's going to take you into a land that is fully inhabited with all kinds of enemies. And he's going to kill all of the enemies. Translation, it's a land that already has houses built. It has a land that already has fields plowed. It's a land that already has irrigation set up. You don't think about that today because building houses is, in theory, quick and easy process. I say is it's not been quick or easy for us yet. You you forget that, like, moving into a field that's already been plowed, that already has irrigation set up, would be a lifesaver. I mean, it would be absolutely huge. God says it's a land of milk and honey, and when you get there, you're not going to show up empty-handed. Because the way I take you out of Egypt is going to be so wonderfully spectacular that the Egyptians themselves are going to pay you to leave. So even though right now all of Israel is dirt poor, they own nothing but their loincloths, they're going to go out with riches into a land that was formerly occupied, and it's going to be magnificent. 
This is, in, I guess, American terms, the equivalent of God saying to his people, look, I love you. I have not forgotten about you. I'm going to have you win the lottery, but it's still not going to destroy your life. When we get to chapter 4. And so you would think that at this point, you would be fairly excited I mean, the bush is talking to you. It's identified itself as God. It's still spectacular to look at. It's shockingly uh, overwhelming to be in its presence already. Uh, we've seen in verse 6 of the previous chapter, Moses has been hiding because he's been afraid of this God because his might, his glory, his beauty is so wonderful. And this God has just promised him the moon and back. He's just promised him an entire country that is filled with wealth when you get there and wealth while you travel. It's, I'm going to give you a new house and a new bank account at the same time. And again, you would think, this is, out of all times, to be excited. (laughs) Oh, Moses. Moses answers just like the child in the opening illustration. He says, but God, I can't. Okay, why? I don't know what the next sentence is going to be. I know it's going to be an adorable little lie. It's going to be a lie. Why can you not do this? Moses answers, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. I love it. The heart of his complaint is they won't believe the word of the Lord, which is exactly what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, this is unbelievable irony in his first statement. God, I can't, I can't go do this. I can't go back to Israel. They're not going to believe what you say. Moses, pay attention. You don't believe what God said. He said he's going to do it. God has said it will be accomplished. He said, go talk to the elders. They will believe you. It will happen. Trust God. Yet Moses, the consummate hypocrite. (laughs) No, I can't do that. I can't do that. I think just in opening introductory purposes to the text. What a a great portrait of so often how we interact with the church. How often we find ourselves in situations, I'll just back it out and say it a bit more clearly. Almost every single time that you get irritated with someone, not every time, but almost every time, it's something you yourself do. It's the whole log in the eye thing. And so abundantly clear, I love this about the holidays because the holidays are wonderful and the best part about the holidays is spending time with your family and it's wonderful and for some of us it's unbelievable, not me, for some of you, it's unbelievably taxing and the reason being is because you're constantly irritated and the reason why you're constantly irritated is because your family does the same thing that you do because they're your family. And we find ourselves frustrated or upset with something that's taking place, <laughs> much like Moses. Oh, Lord, these people are going to drive me crazy. 
Just step back for a moment. Look at your own life. Look at your own self. Have I become the consummate hypocrite? God is unbelievably generous with Moses. He hears his nonsense complaint. They're not going to believe me. God's already said he would do it, but okay. Unbelievably kind. Unbelievably compassionate. Unbelievably condescending as he comes low to Moses and says, Okay, fine. Your faith is weak. I'll give you a sign that will be for your faith even more than it will be for theirs. I'll give you a sign that will be for your encouragement even more than it will be for theirs. What do you have in your hand? The staff. And here we have to kind of uh, do a little bit of, uh, of outside thinking as we come to the text to be reminded of the place where Moses is going. Moses is headed to Egypt, and Egypt has a very rigid power structure and a very rigid culture that is very well established because it's a very old country. And what we oftentimes kind of don't fully pay attention to as we read books like this is that this book is written within the context of Egypt. And this book is written as a great story of combat between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. And it's things that we don't think about, we don't really particularly pay close attention to, because we're not paying attention to the cultural signs. But they show up everywhere throughout the book. In fact, actually, if you want to read a good book on it, it's written by a guy from RTS Charlotte, I can tell you about it later. But here you see the first of them all, because in Egypt, there was one thing that symbolized power more than anything else. It was the staff. Now, in Egyptian, we know this word is an ankh, A-N-K-H. And you see it in all of the, the tombs of Pharaoh. They all have their little staff. Sometimes it's a little curly one that's short. But it was a, a, a marker of what authority and power was. It's why in just a couple of chapters, when it comes time for Moses to do battle with Pharaoh, what happens to the staffs of the magicians of Pharaoh? They get destroyed because it's combat between the living and true God and the gods of Egypt. And here it's introduced. God says, what do you have in your hand? You have a shepherd's staff. But it will be my staff. Your symbol of power, which is really quite puny and not very powerful, will become mine. And I will use your weakness. I will use your thing. I will use you to put my power on great display. I've already used a bush. Now I can use your staff. Chuck it on the ground. I love the way that Moses includes the little details for himself here. So he put it down on the ground. It turns into a snake. He doesn't know what it is. I wasn't expecting that. I'm sure out of all of the things he was expecting it to do, turning into a snake, probably not top of the list. And if you don't remember, a lot of the snakes in this area tend to be unbelievably fatal. So uh, what does he know? Well, and he ran from it. Yeah. (laughs) I love the Lord's command. Oh, yeah, now catch it by the tail. No, thank you. No, thank you. But he does, and it returns to the staff. The Lord displaying his power, a sign for Moses' faith. Next, a hand. Take your hand, 
become Napoleon for a second, pull it out, and it turns diseased. And again, for this, for our kind of current culture, that's, this is like, that's disgusting, right? You put it in, you pull it out, the skin's flaking off, the fingers are falling off, it's, you know, scabby and pussy and disgusting and all kinds of horrible, horrible things. But in the culture in which this is happening, that's a death sentence. That's, hey, look, I'm about to die. What's on my hand will kill me, and there is no cure. I'm suddenly outcast among all outcasts, because what I have will be my death, and it might be the death of you too. In my lifespan, the only thing that comes this close to kind of wrapping our minds around was the HIV scare of like the 80s. To think that, oh, if you have this, it's an instantaneous death sentence. And if I use the same toilet as you, I might have it too. And we all might die together. Let's take them and round them up and lock them in internment camps in Cuba. Puts his hand back in his cloak, pulls it out, and it's clean. God displaying his victory over death even right there. Those will work, Moses, he says, but if they don't. One more. And here, foreshadowing of what will come, foreshadowing of the combat that the book is written to explain, uh, showing uh, the, the contrast between the false idols of the world and the living and true God. He says, take waters from the Nile, pour it out, and I will destroy that too. You have to understand again how important the Nile is to Egypt. Some of the great historians describing ancient Egypt have said the Nile gave birth to Egypt. It, it is the mother of Egypt. It's one of the great, it was the great highway, it was the great place of commerce, it was the thing that flooded that gave them uh, water to drink, it gave them fields that they could then uh, plant and harvest. It was their entire life and it was uh, the highest of gods in so many ways. And God's saying, look, I will display my victory over that too. And to think about the tenderness that God has done. That in the midst of Moses, quite frankly, ridiculous complaint. God doesn't zap him as he could and or maybe should but instead gives him signs that are explicitly oriented to encourage Moses, but to combat the false gods that the Israelites would have to do battle against. The false teaching that they had sat under at points, the false idols that they had seen, perhaps they had been forced to help build temples to them, pyramids to them, we don't know. And here, God displaying victory over them. And you think, I mean, from I read this, and it's so easy for me to be like, surely Moses isn't going to complain now. Like, surely God has given him these three miracles that he can do it, that Moses can do at will. Right? The the, uh, uh, way this is explained is, it's Moses, when he gets to Egypt and is supposed to go around throughout Israel and talk to people, it's like, oh, you don't believe? Here's the staff. Oh, you don't believe? Here's the blood. Oh, you don't believe? Here's the hand. It's something that's done over and over and over and over again to validate his ministry. You would think, surely Moses has got it now. 
I mean, the whole burning bush thing that scared him, thought he was going to die. God making promises, now giving him these miracles that he can do that spooked even Moses himself. Surely this is it. And then Moses again complains. But again, starting with that very beginning, Moses being the hypocrite uh, in not believing the word of the Lord. Again, we have to be careful. We think, well, surely Moses would have gotten it. He has three miracles right in front of him that he could see any time he wanted to help increase his faith. And I have to then say, but we have Jesus. I mean, Moses didn't. All he had was a burning bush and miracles in front of him. We have God himself actually stepping inside humanity. God himself stepping inside time and space, putting on flesh the way that we would put on a suit or dress. Becoming fully human, living a perfect life, dying, being raised, ascending into glory, and then sending his spirit to transform the church. You need a miracle of a staff turning into a serpent? Please. That's so much lesser than what we see on regular occurrences around us in the church. To watch conversions, people brought from death to life. Get to watch spiritual resurrections happen way better than a serpent. To watch sanctification happen. To watch an unusually hard-headed person have that light bulb moment in sanctification. Go, oh, I've been a jerk my whole life. I need to change. To see sin be exposed, to be forgiven, and then to be cleansed. I mean, what a miracle. The things that we see around us all the time. To know Jesus and to still doubt. To still protest to still fight against God's plan. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh man. Oh my Lord. I'm not eloquent. That is a lie. And that's not a little lie. That's a really big lie. Because we get to see, remember Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, we actually know what Moses sounds like when he does talk. He's wonderfully eloquent. Stephen tells us that in Acts chapter 7. He's wonderfully elegant with his words. In fact, actually, even the way that he's been protesting here, your English language translates it conceptually and not word for word in the grammar. What he is doing here is magnificent in the, uh, in the Hebrew. I'm not eloquent, baloney. <laughs> Either in the past, I don't believe it. You were trained in the finest schools in Egypt. And oh yeah, by the way, we actually do have this document. And what was the primary subject that Egyptians taught in school? Anybody want to know? Public speaking. That was the number one thing they taught in their school system. It's a total lie. I'm not elegant either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant like that matters. I wasn't, I wasn't eloquent yesterday. And now since the bush, I'm not eloquent now. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. It's not true. It 
the Lord's response here is a bit sharper. Rather than simply condescending and showing him uh, signs, again, showing him miracles to encourage his faith, now the Lord steps in and corrects his thinking. This is good pastoring by God. It's good parenting by God. Sometimes you account for the weakness and the frailty, and you come alongside and you help, and sometimes you more sharply correct how the mind operates. (laughs) The Lord said to him, I love this, Who made your mouth? Who's giving you the voice to even use it right now? Who's letting you even talk to me to complain? I am. No, he doesn't say it that way. That's my paraphrase. Who made man's mouth? Who's the one who makes a man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, stop talking and go. I added that in. I will be with your mouth. I love that. I love that. What what an encouragement. Go. I'm not just going to be with you. I'll actually be specifically with your mouth. Now send it down to Egypt. And by the way, while you're going, I'll teach you what to speak. Moses again. Oh, Moses. Yeah, this is where actually, I guess, rubber hits the road. This is probably the first time he's really genuinely honest. Oh, Lord, please just send someone else. This is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go. This is going back to the opening illustration, the child that says, not I can't clean up because. It's the child that says, I don't want to. Ooh, defiance. I like it. It's more honest. I get to see what it is. I don't want to do it. God, please send someone else. And you get to see what is the Lord's response here. It's not patience entirely. It still is because he doesn't kill him. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. His anger is stirred up against Moses. And then what does he do? He still gives him another help. Doesn't again zap him as maybe he could or should, but instead shows how he knew Moses from the very beginning. He knew how this would happen from the very beginning. The anger of the Lord is kindled up and he says, all right, fine, Aaron. Oh, yeah, by the way, I caused him to leave Egypt a long time ago. He's already en route. You'll see him in just a couple of days. Hang out. He'll be here. He'll be your voice. But we're going to make this abundantly clear, Moses. Aaron is only the voice. Aaron is not the brains. Aaron is not the brawn. Aaron is not the prophet. Aaron is only the voice. And weirdly enough, providentially, the way that this has ended up working is an exact mirror of how Egypt operated at the time. Egypt in that time, the Pharaoh would be all powerful. He was believed to be a god or the personification of the gods, whatever. Uh, And he was the mind and he was the might, but he was not the voice. He would have a spokesperson, a mouthpiece, a person who would talk for him. Think Lord of the Rings and the mouthpiece of Sauron. Same kind of thing. And now God in his infinite mercy has created the same circumstance for his people. Where Moses would be the one, he would be the prophet. In fact, actually the miracles aren't even given to Aaron as well. They're given to Moses. 
uh, and you will be the one who speaks. He even goes so far in verse 16. (laughs) He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be. The ESV adds a word in here to help you understand what it means, as, but the real, the original, you will be God to him. So when it comes time for Aaron to know the Lord, he will know him through Moses. When it comes time for Aaron to hear the Lord, he will hear him through Moses. When it comes time for Aaron to love the Lord, he will love him through Moses. Moses is the man. Verse 17. Now pick up your staff. Stop talking and go. That's my paraphrase. I love how it doesn't give Moses a chance to have a rejoinder. He doesn't have a chance to talk back. I can't. My legs aren't working anymore. He doesn't have opportunity. 18, he just goes. What do you do with a passage like this? I mean, most of us will not have opportunity to be called to be a prophet to go free Israel from Egypt. You might be. Weirder things have happened, I'm sure. That's not likely to happen. We're not going to be called to do this. We're not going to have the opportunity to watch a staff turn into a serpent or the waters of the Nile turn to blood. But I would contend that this quiet rebellion that we see in Moses is one that is so easy to have stir in our own hearts. Because realistically, we haven't been told to go to Egypt and to fight against Pharaoh and to be the voice that God will use to free his people. But we have been called to holiness and we have been called to fight the forces of evil and we have been called to be God's voice to the nations. Paul says it. How are they going to hear? How are they going to hear about Jesus to believe in him unless someone goes and tells them? We say this now, missiologists, people who specialize in missions are saying, what, this country is something like the third largest unreached people group in the world, the United States. We receive more missionaries than we send now because the rest of the world realizes that this country is a pagan country and they need to evangelize us. It's interesting, too, how much we think we're like the heart of the church now. Like, no, no. But how much do we fight God's command the same way? God, I I can't be your voice. I don't know what to say. Well, God, I I can't tell my neighbor. I don't I don't I don't know what I don't speak. Well, I'm not the I'm not the pastor. I don't I don't know every don't worry about it. You're not called to have the perfect voice. You're called to be faithful and let God be the perfect voice. Well, God, I don't know what to do. Still go serve him. Let him do that. He he will take care of that as well. Well, God, I can't be holy. I I can't can't have victory in this area. And again, you you hear the litany 
of excuses. Because the thing that Moses actually, and I, I think most genuinely struggles with, it seems like he has no object permanence for the presence of the Lord. You know what object permanence is? It's what little children don't have, where if they, you hide something from them, they forget it exists. It's why playing with little kids is so fun. It's like you can go peekaboo, and then the hands go over, and you've disappeared, and they don't know where you are. It's like, well, where did the head go? Oh, it's back. I can say, oh, where did the head go? Oh, it's back. You know, I love it. It's fantastic. But it's like Moses has done that with God himself. Oh, there's a burning bush. God is here, but I can't go anywhere else. Oh, but God is mighty, but he's mighty here, but he's not mighty anywhere else. It's like he forgets that God goes with him. And I would suggest humbly that sometimes we do the exact same thing. All of those promises of I will be with you, we forget. We ignore, we plug our ears or whatever else. And so the various callings that God places in our lives suddenly become needlessly difficult. Because we forget the one who goes with us. Maybe that calling for us right now is a calling of sickness. Maybe the Lord's given you an illness that you don't want to have. I mean, that pretty much is every illness, but this one's particularly tough. Guess what? The Lord has given you the calling and he goes with you. Perhaps it's a person in your life that you just want to throttle. You find yourself praying that you won't kill him. I'm done with this. The Lord has placed that person in your life for a purpose. Do not forget the presence of the Lord. Perhaps it's a a unique and particularly difficult sin. Maybe some of you are in a, a particular season of just temptation where you're like, oh, just make it stop. The only way to survive that is to remember his promises. I will go with you. And to know he's a tender God, he's a kind God. Here Moses is lying to him and he's still encouraging him and helping him and giving him signs and giving him promises and giving him helps and even saying, look, I will go with you and be with your mouth. I'll make it work. It'll be fine. It's perfect as well, even as we think about the new year. Who knows what 2019 holds? I mean, God does. I don't. I, I suspect it's going to be a very lively year for most of us in here. I suspect it's going to be a very lively year for this church. I don't know if you can see, but from where I'm standing, there are not a lot of empty chairs in here. I have a building out there, a driveway that's moved. No matter what happens... In 2019, I would contend it is our mission, first and foremost, to seek to obey the Lord because he goes with us. He is with us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fight him. We don't have to lie. We don't have to be the hypocrite. Our mission is to be faithful. Because he's with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus, you are indeed with us always.
we thank you that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. We thank you that no matter what the difficulty we face is, you have not made a mistake and you have not left us alone. We pray for those that in our midst now that do not feel your presence. For those that for whatever reason they feel lonely and isolated, they feel afar off from you. And oh God, we pray that you would heal them, heal their hearts, give them great confidence in your promises. And the reminder that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.